Thanks so much, Ali, for leading us the way you have this morning. And uh, please turn back in your Bibles to Philippians 3. We're going to have a look at this together today. And as you're doing that, let me just say again, it's an absolute joy to be here this morning, to be with you as a church family. I've got so many memories. And when Ken was talking about camps, I've got a few stories about camps from the the CE days, uh, before there were laws and stuff like that, you know. But... uh, (laughs) Great, great days. The days when Elspeth sat on you and Sandy rescued you, you know, if you were fortunate. Uh, But tremendous happy memories and so many of them in and around this place and in and around these faces. Uh, I bring you greetings of Harper Church in Glasgow and also of Christianity Explored Ministries. And we love our partnership in the gospel with you. And uh, mention was made of my brother. And I'm going to mention him because I'm going to start off with an illustration that he gave me. Uh, He read it, I think he read it in the Reader's Digest, which just tells you so much about the quality of this guy, or the people's friend or something like that. But it was the story of a World War II sailor who was convinced that if his ship was bombed and he went into the water, he would not be able to remain afloat even for uh, a moment or two. So in trying to work out how he was going to survive that situation, he got himself a cork life jacket. don't know if you've heard of such a thing. And he became so attached to it that he literally never removed it. He worked in it, he ate in it, he briefly relaxed in it, he slept in it. And at the end of the war, when his ship finally got to the harbour and he got back onto land, he was so relieved to know that that period in his life was finished that he finally took off the cork life jacket and threw it into the water in an act of celebration. Imagine his surprise when it sank like a brick. (laughs) It had become impregnated with oil from the engine room and grime and dirt and all kinds of other contaminants. And far from guaranteeing his survival, if he'd gone into the water with that on, it would have been an absolute catastrophe. He was banking on it to save him and it would have sunk him had he actually had to put his trust in it. Now I think as we go to Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul would have known how that sailor felt as the implications of his false security dawned on him when he saw that thing sinking in the harbour. Like us, Paul lived in a world where people died and he knew that one day he would die and he longed for the certainty of resurrection. Verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And I take it that's something that everyone would want to attain. To know that when we pass away, it's not just the end, but a gateway to everlasting life, which isn't just long, but multidimensionally awesome forever. More wonderful than we can ever imagine. And in these verses that we've read this morning, the first 11 of Philippians 3, it's as if Paul is watching his old religious cork life jacket sinking in the harbour without trace. He knows what he used to be trusting in for acceptance with God. He knows what he used to be trusting in for resurrection from the dead. And he came to see that that would have failed him. It would have damned him forever. Because now he has found the key, not just to survival, but the key to joyful, eternal life. He calls it, verse 8, have a look, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That means that 
knowing Jesus as Lord meant more to Paul than anything. I find that very challenging. I find that very challenging. Could the Lord look at me this morning and, and with that X-ray ability to, he has to really work out my priorities and could he see in me that the Lord Jesus is more precious than anything? Verse 8 goes on, For his sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And what I find very striking in these verses is how verse 11 shows us that Paul was trusting Jesus for eternal life. But ahead of that, verse 8 shows us that he was treasuring Jesus in everyday life. Trusting him for eternal life. And the sign that that was real was that he was treasuring Jesus in everyday life. They're the two things I want us to look at in this passage this morning. Let's take them in turn. First of all, what does Paul say about trusting Jesus for eternal life? You'll know that often in the gospel, a negative strengthens the positive in the gospel. And when we are trusting in Jesus to raise us from death, as we heard Ken say to the boys and girls, to forgive our sins and put us right with God, we're also deliberately, as we trust in him, we're also deliberately not trusting in anything else. There is the positive trust in Christ. There is the negative, no, I'm not looking to anything or anyone else to trust me. And that's what Paul's writing about in his experience here. Have a look, verse 3. For we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and... Here's the negative. We put no confidence in the flesh. We're not trusting in any of that. And then he goes back to the old cock life jacket. Though I myself have reason, if I wanted to wear a religious cock life jacket, says Paul, I've got a cracker. I've got reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he's reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. That just means that his he had great parents who took their Jewish legalistic responsibilities really seriously. Eighth day, job done. Verse 5, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the tribe from which came Israel's first king, Saul. After whom probably Paul was named. He's royalty. Verse 5, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. So you see, for every serious Jew, Paul had the most enviable upbringing. He had the best religious cork life jacket. He had the perfect ethnic, cultural, educational, religious background. And there was a time when that's what he was wearing too protect him. That's what he was banking on for his relationship with God, for his salvation. And if anyone had reason to trust in performance, Paul had it. And he clung to that religious pedigree. But, verse 7, whatever gain I had, socially, religiously, educationally, there was great gains. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. What used to be in my treasure cabinet is now in the trash. 
I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And he gained Christ as he turned from trusting all the other stuff. See, when he trusted in his own performance and achievements, he would never have thought about trusting Christ. Who needs a saviour when they're sure they don't need one? He thought he'd made it. He thought he was home and dry with God. But when by the grace of God his eyes were opened and he understood that his religious, moral, career, performance was just a veneer covering up the reality of a, of a deep rebellion in his nature against God. When he saw that Jesus had given everything for him on the cross and had laid down his perfect life to pay for the sin of those who trust in him and one day raise them from death. When his eyes were open to see that, Paul binned his respectability life jacket. He realized it would have taken him to the bottom. And he began to trust in Christ. Notice now what he wanted instead. Verse 8, For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Gain. And be found, verse 9, in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. It's amazing that he should say that because there was that period in his life we read about in verse 6 where that was a great treasure. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Used to mean everything to him. That record in law keeping, his perfect reputation among his seniors and peers. That used to be what he was banking on, but not now. Now he wants not his record, but the record of the Lord Jesus being imputed, is the word the theologian's talking about, transferred over to his account. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own. But verse 9, look at it. One that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that defends, depends on faith. It's 500 years this year since Martin Luther, as a Roman Catholic monk, confessed that he hated God. He hated God because he could see, as a devout religious man, that God demanded a righteousness of him that he could not produce. And then, famously, one day, when reading a similar passage to this, it was actually Romans chapter 1, Luther's blinded eyes were opened and he saw it. He saw that the God who demands a righteousness of us had provided a righteousness for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that righteousness was accessible to anyone through faith alone, Nothing but faith, no works. Faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. And that discovery 500 years ago as God, by the Holy Spirit, opened Luther's eyes has changed the world that we live in. This is a great year to celebrate it. Read a good book about it. It'll encourage you. Because people are still discovering this amazing good news. Romans 1 I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. The power of God to rescue sinners for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That was Luther's big moment. Eyes open, life changed. Gospel rediscovered five centuries ago. Have you made the switch yet? Is that your story? Have you had your Luther moment? It's crazy that we go through life, and here's how it can easily creep into our spiritual lives, because we go through the rest of life trying to gain credibility, trying to gain reputation. We think others are going to be impressed, and we apply the same rationale to God. We think God will be impressed. I recall a Christian couple who'd moved home into a nice new area, and they were telling me that they'd been getting a chat with the neighbours because they, quote, wanted the neighbours to know the kind of people they were. I'm thinking to myself, that's weird. I don't want my neighbours to know the kind of person I am. Why would you do that? You're kidding yourself. That act of letting the neighbours know the kind of person you are is a smokescreen to put them off the trail about the kind of person you are. Who are we kidding? If you knew the kind of person I was, I was, you wouldn't come within a mile of me, never mind invite me to preach on a Sunday. And if I knew the kind of person you were, I wouldn't let you within a mile of me. True. Pedigree, reputation, achievement, standing, respectability, they cut it with people, but they're a smokescreen. God knows the truth. And I don't know about you, but when I come to die, I would be a lot happier if I had the pedigree and the reputation and the achievement and the standing of Jesus before his Father applied to me. And that's what he gives those who trust in him. He knows the truth about us. And it's much worse than we know about us. And by faith we have access to that amazing perfection of the Lord Jesus applied to our account. So I am with Paul. I don't want a righteousness of my own. Goodness. I don't want perfection. I want his perfection paid to my account by faith because I know I'm an abject failure. And I know that his death was where my sin was paid for so that my sin was paid to his account and his righteousness is paid to my account. And Paul captures the wonder of it there in verse that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead that's how it works knowing Jesus, trusting Jesus is the only way to eternal life but there are always the pressures for us to begin to trust other things along with Jesus. Jesus and. And when it's Jesus plus, it's minus Jesus. The only way Paul could speak of gaining Christ was to lose the rest. So he's writing to this church in Philippi because their trust in Jesus alone was being undermined. The debate among the church in Philippi centered on the question of who are the real thing, who are the real believers. So Paul nails that issue. Verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me. It's a safeguard, as then he says, or safe for you in the ESV. And then he says a strange thing in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, just a word on the context. Some Jews 
in the time insulted their Gentile neighbors by calling them dogs because they regarded them as spiritually ceremonially unclean. And Paul says the real dogs are the guys who, is, who come into the Christian church, he says, and insist that we must add to faith alone and Christ alone this outdated Jewish rite of circumcision. He says these are evil people. And they may sound as though they are very spiritual and want to do more for the Lord and want to have more assurance that they're his. He says it's absolute evil that they're guilty of. And all they do is mutilate the flesh. He says, verse 3, look. He says, look, for the Christian believer, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. His big message to the church in Philippi was that belonging to historic Israel is of no eternal consequence now. Belonging to Christ by faith is everything. So he's telling us here that the true fulfillment of the Old Testament Jewish rite of circumcision is a renewed heart that comes to us by the gospel of Christ. A renewed heart heart by the spirit of God by whom we worship as we glory in Christ so that's the historical context of what's going on I've just explained it minimally but you can see that Paul is setting up a, a contrast actually a conflict between a mere religious routine that some of them had going in Philippi that focused on the external physical issues a contrast between that and, on the other hand, a relationship with God by his Son through his Spirit that's based on faith that was internal and spiritual, not external and physical. And that's what we mean, isn't it? By trusting Jesus for everlasting life. Not in our performance, not in what we do, but in what he has done. And there is a lot that we do on the back of that. Because he's changed our lives, we live differently. But the way we live is not what we offer up and put hope in to justify us. We're trusting entirely in Christ. So that's the first thing, trusting in Jesus for everyday life. Secondly, and we've got ahead of ourselves a little bit. Are you trying to hurry me on here? I don't blame you. Many have tried. Um, second thing, treasuring Jesus in everyday life. So there's two dangers highlighted by this section of Philippians. The first, as we've seen, is the danger of clinging onto the old false hope, the contaminated religious cork life vest of our performance to make us acceptable with God. That's a danger. But the second danger arises, if you've drifted off, come back now, because the second danger arises when we've seen the first danger. Right, So I now see that I cannot put myself right with God. I now see what God has done for me in Christ as he laid down his life on the center cross that Friday. I now see that he's risen from the dead. The debt was paid. The way is open. I can now have fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus. That's amazing. Now when I've seen that, there's a second danger. And it's the danger of trusting Jesus in a way that just means I'll have him on my side in the end. But not actually having him as a core part of my life every day. That's the next danger. 
It's the danger of trusting Jesus, but treating him as you would trust that trustworthy life vest. Or as you would, tr as you would trust in a fire escape, if you live in a tall building that has a fire escape. Or in the way that you trust in your insurance policy. With the exception of those in the insurance industry, no one gets particularly excited when the insurance policy comes through the mail. You don't take a selfie with it and post it on Facebook because it's a huge joy to you. If you work in a high building or live in a high building, good that the emergency escape is there, but you, it doesn't give you joy every day. You don't glory over that thing. And the reason that some people are miserable, although they think they're Christians, they would consider themselves Christians, but they're not happy people, is that they think about Jesus that way. They're not excited about him. He's not the source of their joy. They would not do what Paul does here. They would not gladly lose all things and count them rubbish in comparison to the gain of Jesus. They just don't think about him in that way. They think they've trusted in Jesus as their insurance policy. He's their fire escape. He's their hell fire escape. Good to have when the day comes. He's like a highly effective life jacket. When they tell you on the plane that the life jacket's under your seat and it has a light and a whistle for attracting attention, how much more fun can you have? on an eight-hour flight, a light and a whistle. But you're not allowed to get it out and you're not allowed to put it on and you're not allowed to inflate it until you have to leave the aircraft. But people treat Jesus like a highly effective life jacket. In reality, bulky, restrictive, unfashionable. Makes you look weird. Bit of a nuisance. But... I'm hanging on to him because when the ship goes down, I want to stay afloat. And maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about because that's how you feel. You would, listen, let's be honest. Some of us would shake off Jesus and his word and his church in a split second if we could and go and do the things we really want to do, but we don't want to go to hell. So we stick with Jesus. As a life jacket, as an insurance policy, as a fire escape. But we don't delight in him. He's not the core of the joy of our lives. We're trusting in him maybe for eternal life, but not treasuring him in everyday life. And as far as Paul is concerned, these two things are inseparable. That's the big message of Philippians 3, 1 to 11. You cannot be the one without being the other. It's not Jesus you've got unless, you're, unless he's your joy. Because that's who he is. And the evidence that we trust Jesus for eternal life is that we treasure Jesus in everyday life. That stops him being an insurance policy or a fire escape or a life jacket. 
Let's get practical as we close. What does this mean to treasure Jesus? That sounds, that's preacher talk. What does it mean to treasure Jesus? Well, Paul shows us what that looks like three times in these verses. And now we've got the first of the second load of headings up. Number one, we treasure him by finding our joy in him. Notice verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And by that, Paul means find your deepest indestructible joy in the Lord, which you experience in him no matter what is going on in your life. That's what Paul did in chapter 1. Flick back for a moment to chapter 1, verse 15. He's talking about a real bind that he was in. And he says, some indeed, verse 15, chapter 1, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm here in jail for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. That's where I get my joy, says Paul, even when I'm banged up in the jail for having done nothing other than proclaim Christ. Even then, others on the outside are stirring it for him, trying to further afflict him, make it harder for Paul, make it more of a grind for him, more difficult for him. And even then, he says, I'm still finding my deepest joy in Christ and in the fact that he is being held up. And if he can know that joy as he rots in jail for the gospel, he can know it anywhere. Now we import that meaning from chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 1. And see that the command to rejoice in the Lord must mean that whether life is great or grim, we can find joy in him. Psalm 119, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Best day and worst day. Greatest day and grimmest day. Those who know the Lord know that on the most difficult, fearful day of your life, there is joy to be found in him. When every other joy has abandoned you. There is nothing greater in this world than that can eclipse the joy to be found in him. The old hymn nails it, doesn't it? Solid joys and lasting treasures. None but Zion's children know. And if you're thinking that that's only a certain personality type who's like that, just this slightly wacky Christians who are like that, who really take it seriously, and there's a, most of us don't, listen, we need to recalibrate our thinking. Paul's point is that us treasuring Jesus in everyday life is, is not just for a few it's for everyone, but it's for no one unless it's a work of the Holy Spirit. His point is that this is the evidence of spiritual reality within. That's not a human thing that finds joy in Christ above everything else. That's not to do with how you were brought up and what church you went to and what books you read. That's to do with a supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit, at work in people and setting our affections on him and helping us to find our greatest joy in him. 
So number one, we treasure him by finding and enjoying him. Secondly, subheading, we treasure him by keeping it real with him. What do I mean by that? Well, we've already looked at verse 3, but flick back for a moment. We are a circumcision who, and this is what I mean by keeping it real, we worship by the Spirit of God. So worship is not just singing on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening or a midweek evening. Worship is giving to God what he is worth. Our whole lives are meant to reflect what we think God is worth, worth as, we, as we rest and read and view and surf the web and eat and work and talk and text and drive and dream and buy and sell and everything else that we do. In all of these things, we give to God what we think he's worth. That's worship. And it is God's spirit in us who enables us to live so as to show that we think what he is worth and that he is worth a lot. So different, isn't it, from going to church? We certainly do it. We've done it this morning as we lifted up the name of the Lord, as we sang these songs and as we fellowshiped and as we heard reports and as we were led in prayer, we've certainly done that this morning. But it's not just what happens in this building for an hour or so on a Sunday. Do you recall when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4? The woman said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you see that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, There is coming. And is now here. Do you remember it? When the true worshippers said Jesus will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, in consistency. Just keeping it real with him. Not having a one hour peak in our spiritual activity once a week on a Sunday morning. But just as we live and as we learn and as we repent and rejoice and keep turning back to him, we're showing him what we think he's worth. And since the risen Lord Jesus returned to heaven and poured out his Holy Spirit into the lives of those who trust him, when we worship him, we don't need a special day or a special time or a special place or building or setting or program or service or clothing or music or person. All of these things are external. All of these things are physical. The mark of the true believer is that we worship all the time, every day, by the Spirit of God. The sign of spiritual reality is not external but internal. It's not physical but spiritual. It's not something humans can do apart from the work of God's Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul means when he says, it's we who worship, verse 3, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We worship him with all our lives because we see him as all worthy. The Holy Spirit helps us constantly to see that. And we glory in him because he is our hero. Because he is our champion. We all hope, don't we? To unless we're French, we hope to be glorying in our national team later today. We hope that they are give a good account of themselves as they did last weekend on the rugby field. And this world knows how to glory in people. 
That's not a difficult term for us to understand. We see it all the time, what it is to glory in people. Well, those who are trusting in Christ for eternal life treasure Jesus in everyday life. And the way they do it is they glory in him. And it's not an effort. It's not that they have to remind themselves. It's the work of the Holy Spirit showing them new things about Jesus every day. And they say, he's amazing. He's our hero. He is our champion. He is our savior. And we're experiencing his saving power. And we're experiencing his joy. Treasuring Jesus in everyday life by finding your joy in him. Keeping it real with him. Lastly and finally now by losing the lot for him. Verse 8. I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The Lord Jesus never hid the cost of gaining him, did he? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He never head the cost in terms of the pressure and the hassle we receive in this life now from those who refuse to glory in him, who think he's just the biggest embarrassment and who think that those who glory in him are the second biggest embarrassment. Jesus didn't hide from us the fact that that is going to be difficult in this world. And neither did Paul. He speaks in verse 10 of sharing in his sufferings. There are those times, aren't there, in the Christian life when it may be tempting to treasure an easy life in that moment above treasuring Jesus. As though he isn't worth the hassle that he brings when we stand for him, when we order our life to put him first, when we prioritize his glory above our own ease and pleasure. There's lots of times when it's easier not to do that. But Paul's point is that when you, when you know Jesus, he is so utterly worth it. He says, I've lost nothing. I remember the guy who was preaching the night, Colin and I got saved, Fred Orr, in Belsill, uh, who had been a missionary. He went to be with the Lord a few years ago. He, spent, he was from Belfast, but he spent his life in Brazil. And I, after he died, I had the privilege of going to Manaus and preaching in the the church that he founded and formed. So it was a very different life from what it would have been had he stayed in in Belfast with his business. And he used to say to us, he says, you know, people say, oh, it's amazing what you've given up for the Lord. He says, I've given up nothing for the Lord. He said, the story of my life is not a story of all the things I've given up for him. It's all the things I've gained in him. That's authentic. That's reality. Anybody who knows Christ would tell you that. He is so utterly worth it. To know him is to know the power of his resurrection applied to you. It's to be plugged into the mains and have that resurrection power in your life every day. That's astounding. So Paul's not just thinking of the value that Jesus will be to him when he breathes his last. He is trusting in Jesus for eternal life. But he is treasuring him in everyday life. And that's the proof that he has that eternal life. 
So we can't have Jesus just in case. We, it's not Jesus we've got if we think of him as a fire escape or an insurance policy or a life jacket. Trusting Jesus' for everlasting life means treasuring Jesus in everyday life. Have we got that? Let's pray together. Father, we ask by your goodness, by your grace, by the power of your word and the power of your spirit, that even this morning as we think about this and the huge issues of our lives and our blindness to these things, I confess, my Lord, we ask that you would do that work in us and bring us from unreality to reality with you. How could it be that we would want a Jesus who will save us from the consequences of sin on a coming day, but not save us from the indwelling power of sin in the present day? And why would we mess about with trinkets and trash when there is the eternal treasure of the God of the universe to know and to walk through life with? How we thank you for our Lord Jesus. How we thank you for his death and resurrection. That he now lives in the power of an indestructible life. And because he lives, we also shall live whose trust is in him. So make us glad as we come to the table now that we have such a strong and mighty rescuer in Jesus. And Lord, grant that all the aspects of this passage would click in our heads and hearts today and that we would move on with you and the proof of that would be treasuring you every day. We ask it for the glory of your name. Amen.